What a cracking intro. What a cracking intro. Pumped, pumped. <laughs> so uh, welcome, everybody, to another cracking edition of the Map Round Show. This is the Built in New York series, uh, where I'm shining a light and having conversations that matter with founders in New York, uh, building and changing the shape and look and feel of the world of business. With me on the line is Derek Leclerc uh, from MPEC. Welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for having me. Uh, no, it's great, man. Thank you for, for being here. So uh, why don't you kick us off, uh, Derek? Um, you're doing some very interesting things. I've had the privilege of getting to really understand the, the story here. But for our viewers and uh, audience around the world who potentially haven't heard about you or, uh, or, or about your startup, give us the uh, elevator pitch. What do we need to know? Sure. Yeah. So um, in, in order to reach our 2050 climate goals, just in the United States, um, we have to decarbonize about 7,800 buildings every single day for the next 28 years. So that's a pretty uh, staggering statistic. And the first step for any one of these retrofits is to do an assessment of what's already in place. And that's what MPEC is all about, is, is helping this site survey or data collection uh, period with a an AI-enabled uh, software that reduces the time spent on this really tedious process by up to 80%. So uh, we're going to get into that. So what, these climate goals that you touched on, uh, Derek, <clears throat> what are they exactly? Are these like the UN climate goals? Like who's setting these goals? So it it, um, it really depends on the goal itself. Um, the I'm, I'm mostly talking about the United States. But um, because of the federalist system, you know, every state has its own climate goals. And so, uh, but I wanted to just focus on the U.S. Okay. Because um, 2050 seems a long way away, doesn't it? It does. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I think when you think, when you bring it back down to, you know, the, the individual level, you know, Every day that goes by that we're not retrofitting 7,800 buildings, it becomes a, a much more present problem. Mm, exactly. So let's talk about these buildings. So you said there's 7,500 odd buildings, right? That need to be, um, become or that need to become more energy compliant. So mm -hmm. let's talk about these uh, these buildings. Like, you know, how old are they? Where are they? Um, and what is the impact of these um, the buildings and the equipment in these buildings? on, you know, the achievement of these uh, 2050 climate goals? Sure. Yeah. So um, the, uh, I think with regard to the built environment, which is just a fancy way of saying buildings and other things that human beings have built, uh, like utility substations and such, um, generally speaking, you're talking about a really old building stock in the United States. Um, it's, about about three quarters of all buildings in the U.S. Uh, were are over 22 years old, meaning they were built in the, the last century. Um, and another 66% of buildings have never been retrofitted, have never been touched in any way, shape, or form. So at the end of the day, you are dealing with old buildings that are still using old systems. And when you do that sort of math, it makes it pretty simple to figure out that or why um, you end up having 41% of all of the energy used in the United States consumed by buildings. That's crazy. Hey, 
Like it, I think it is, yeah. It it's like is. no one would ever say like, "Hey, you know, buildings consume like half of the roughly half of the energy produced in the U.S." <laughs> exactly. You would think it would yeah. be like I don't know, like manufacturing plants or like hardcore, you know, Ford General Motors and these sorts of things. But these are like commercial properties, residential properties, even. Uh, I know we're talking about commercial properties here, uh, but um, but it's a crazy number to really you know put into perspective. It is, but you know, if you think about it, what do you generally see when you look at the horizon? You see building homes and buildings. You know, mm-hmm. exactly. So, um, so Derek, um, in terms of the um, the the problem, we we discussed previously um, before you we went live that uh, the Clean Energy Act. Um, has been passed by Congress, where they're putting like six hundred billion dollars into uh, clean energy. Um, what's the issue here? I mean, when you think about this, there's a lot of money to be putting into any sector. What do you feel like the impact is going to be, and where do you see some friction points in the distribution of this amount of money into the sector? Well, I think we are going to find ourselves in a situation that is where there's going to be too much demand and not enough supply, um, I think is maybe the shortest way to say it. Um, you're, you're absolutely right to say it. it's a staggering amount of money to be put into a, uh, an industry. And um, a lot of this cash um, is being invested into the built environment um, to upgrade utility substations and, and also, um, you know, just to, uh, to incentivize and, and, and just make our buildings uh, more efficient. But again, uh, the the problem that we have is that this data collection issue um, and and quantifying the built environment is so antiquated. I mean, you're talking about some of the most highly trained, highly paid professionals in the industry walking around with pen and paper and a smartphone taking pictures of nameplates and or, you know, just other uh, specs about the equipment. And it's completely inefficient. And when you add on top of that a labor shortage, because, you know, when you're talking about uh, folks around my age, I'm 37, like when we were young, we were all told like, oh, you know, don't don't get a blue collar job, you know, go to college, you know. And um, now, probably unsurprisingly, there's all of a sudden a a shortage of, of people to do this exact type of work. So we have two potential paths forward to make sure that this money is spent wisely and, and, you know, correctly and with, you know, rapidity uh, fast enough to get us to that. We're really making a difference in, in a short amount of time. And that is either to lower the barrier to entry to doing these types of, you know, site surveys or making those who already know how to do them more efficient. And what we've come up with at MPEC essentially does both of those things. Um, it, it makes it easier uh, for somebody that has less experience with equipment, with buildings, uh, to, uh, to do their jobs. And, um, and, you know, that opens up a new workforce. So we have, we're working with uh, United, uh, United Nations and, um, and Renewable, in- uh, Nations, Renewable Nations Institute on a, on a pilot program right now that is going to actually take um, uh, school age kids and give them, uh, a, a, in a sense, a, a paid internship to do this sort of site survey work 
using our tool. Of course, without it, they would be lost. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously, we're we're reducing that uh, that barrier to entry. But additionally, you know, for the folks that do this for a living, um, you know, it literally it's like four times faster um, than mm -hmm. what they were doing before. So Derek, just to be clear for our audience here, so your audience is not the commercial building owner, it's the service providers to the building. So these are like engineering firms, mechanical uh, mechanical rather contractors who are looking to essentially evaluate um, the efficacy of buildings, right? So uh, one of the key stats you shared with me was that 66% of all buildings have never been upgraded since the day where they, they were built, which is ridiculous. And that's despite 75% of them being over 20 years old. So these uh, mechanical contractors, as an example, what you're saying is for everybody is that they go into these buildings and they use a manual process to evaluate the different hardware components, boilers, and things like that inside these buildings. Um, is is that correct? That is correct. Now, uh, I don't want to misrepresent that there's no other uh, solutions on the market. Um, but pretty much all of them are one of two things, which is either they're using OCR, which is optical character recognition. So, you know, you go up to a, a piece of equipment, you take a picture of the boilerplate, and it extracts the, the, the text. The other is what are called smart forms, um, which are essentially just kind of glorified Google Sheets. So the benefit that that gives you is you are able to type in the information at the site. But the negative is that there's still a lot of what we like to call it fat fingering, right? Like you're you can still make mistakes. And um, so both of those things do cut down on some on the time that that uh, these professionals take. But at the end of the day, there's still a really manual process involved because even with OCR, okay, great. I've got all this text. Now what goes where? You know, there's no intelligence there. It's just here's everything that was on the nameplate. Um, and then you have to go back to the office, say, okay, well, this was the, 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 you know, the manufacturer name. This is the model number. This is, you know, and, that's, and that takes a lot of time. So the bottom line is that before uh, we, you know, we brought our product to market, um, the other alternatives um, were saving maybe 20 to 30 percent of the time. And what we found is even with the MVP, which we released, released last year, we were finding a minimum of 50 percent time savings and up to 80. Um, and that's over pen and paper, which despite these other alternatives being on the market, pen and paper is by far the most common incumbent when we, when we speak to uh, prospect mm -hmm. so you've got this thing i've got your website up for everybody called the fast fights fast site survey rather <clears throat> so what exactly is the fast site survey like and and maybe if you could unpack a little bit more around like how does this how do you actually solve this problem i mean one sure. of the key one of the key things uh, that uh, that i loved uh, about your product was the fact that you're able to look up inventory of hardware like there's a massive data engine behind this it's not just a survey tool yeah absolutely so um what the tool does today is um it allows you to walk up to a piece of equipment um, take one picture of it. And, and, you know, you mentioned massive inventory. We've had folks use this for all different types of equipment. So, you know, our, I would say our sweet spot, kind of our, our beachhead market is and was uh, heating and cooling equipment along with lighting. Um, but, you know, we've had people use it for everything from uh, safety, uh, safety equipment. So like 
fire extinguishers and eye wash stations. And uh, the bottom line is that, uh, you know, we, we go pretty deep. And um, with that one picture, you're immediately digitizing the information about that uh, piece of equipment. And what you're referring to um, is, uh, well, actually, one other really kind of cool feature that I, I, I love is that on about 60% of the heating and cooling equipment, and we, we are uh, uh, we, we are uh, limited to that, at least of right now, but about 60% of the heating and cooling equipment, we also are able to figure out the uh, estimated remaining uh, useful life just from that one photograph, which is really cool. So you can tell the building owner, you know, hey, this boiler, it is 10 years past its useful life, you know, just with one picture. It's incredible. Uh, and of course, at sixty percent now, we're going to go. We're going to keep getting better and better uh, from there. And then, furthermore, uh, we're going to expand that to other pieces of equipment as well. But um, what you're referring to uh, is, is called libraries, which is not only are you going to get the you know the, the you know, make model, the efficiency, the SEER rating, or whatever you know whatever insider lingo you want to use, but you're also going to get owner owners manuals, and you're going to get um, you know, the, the, spe- the spe- uh, specifics around the belts and filters that you need for replacements or, you know, cooling uh, or, or coolant, I should say, all that sort of information, all from one photograph. That's going to be released this quarter, uh, uh, which what we're calling Fastside Survey 3.0 internally. Uh, but, um, yeah, it, but it will be out in short order, and that's something we're really excited about. Where is this information usually? Is it on, like in a safe somewhere like should, <laughs> you know what i mean like it's it's not if a set I told of you mad i'd have to kill you no um, <laughs> <laughs> um so i mean how it's done in the um you know how it's done in the real world today it's it's so rudimentary i mean like and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll probably get into this a little bit later but you know my co-founder herbert and i uh we <laughs> did this ourselves this was our job and um what you did and what people still do is they just Google it, right? Like, okay, I've got the model number now. Let me type that into Google. Okay. Here. And you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's crazy that this still occurs, but how, you know, how we've recruited over, um, you know, how we've been able to build what we've been able to build. Um, I would simply tell you, Matt, that the company was started. We just actually had our six year uh, birthday uh, short uh, in sh- uh, about a month ago, and um, thank you. Yes, I it feels it, it feels like sixty, but it's been six, and um, we didn't sit around twiddling our thumbs for six years. So, um, you know, this is a this is a long time coming, and um, it's great to see our vision come into life. Mm-hmm. So, um, so just to stick a little bit more uh, around the industry here, like we we all recognize like there's a lot of liquidity in the sustainability conversation, even let alone like investment going into startups, startups doing amazing things. I've had, you know, startups doing using computer vision and landfills to track products from where they were manufactured and how they, you know, like it's crazy sure. what's going on in, t- in terms of like in- innovation and investment uh, in the sustainability uh, space. Um, in many cases, in my experience, is that there's a lot of lip service. This is like greenwashing. You know, it's sure. like, yeah, 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 we're, you know, energy compliance or we have zero emissions. And a lot of it, quite frankly, is bullshit. Um, and so I'm curious to get your views here on, like, what is the carrot or is there a carrot uh, and or is there a stick that is driving the desired 
behavior change in this uh, commercial building space from an energy compliance perspective. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, so there are both carrots and sticks employed uh, by uh, the folks, you know, the powers that be, if you will. So the carrots have been around a long time. And, and generally speaking, that's things like utility incentives, uh, maybe state incentives that really bring down the cost of, uh, of a project. Um, so, you know, it might be a situation. I mean, I, I can give you a perfect example of this, which was this is like an extreme example. Uh, that there was a utility in New York State maybe 10 or 15 years ago when LEDs uh, were, I, I believe it was LEDs, it might have been, um, well, I, we'll just say it's LEDs. It was a long time ago now. They, um, uh, they, they were willing to pay for the entire cost of the project, zero. You had to, do, you had to pay nothing, the, and they would give you upgraded lights um, because when LEDs came out, uh, they were so much more efficient than what was already there. And so that's an extreme version. A lot of times they might say, well, we'll pay for 20% of the project or we'll pay for 30 or 50. And really the idea is to incentivize building owners to say, okay, well, you know, it's the best of both worlds. I get new stuff, whether it's new you know, lighting or windows or, you know, boilers, um, air source heat pumps. And maybe I'm getting enough energy savings that it's actually even going to give me a return, right? So um, I can either pay for it myself or I can take out a loan or, you know, there's so many different financial products that exist uh, around energy efficiency now. It's, people have been very, very creative over the last uh, 15 or 20 years and essentially use the, the energy savings to pay for these upgrades. And um, when that occurs, you know, that's a win-win. Um, but, you know, I guess back to your question about greenwashing, it, you know, that, that it is something that's, you know, considered to be a great thing for the industry, uh, or I'm sorry, a great thing for industry, I should say, that it's a marketing ploy. Um, but, you know, I think that a lot of the building owners that we deal with, I, I've always had this belief that if it's done right, which often it is not, that capitalism can be a force for good and the reality is is that a lot of these solutions these energy solutions that have been that have been you know innovated over the last 25 years are they pay for themselves and so you know it's actually not only good for the planet good for 
uh, you know, uh, our environment and everything, it's actually a good investment too. So, um, you know, that's a, that can be a really uh, powerful uh, value prop, especially when you do get that, that marketing boost as well. Mm. Um, but I, uh, as far as the stick, you, you mentioned, or I, I talked a little bit about the, about the carrot. There are more sticks that are being, um, uh, that are going to be utilized, uh, in the market right now. Uh, in Ithaca, where, where the company is based and where I live, we were the first uh, municipality to require buildings be electrified. So uh, the point there is that buildings are being forced off of fossil fuels. Um, and they're, you know, the, the way that they're going to force this through is that um, there's there's going to be fines. And, of course, much bigger and and more internationally, you know, significant is the fact that New York City has done the exact same thing. Um, they've done their own sort of new uh, Green New Deal. And so there's 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 a couple of local what their local laws, 87 and 97, 87 is requiring that these sort of energy audits that I that I mentioned a little while back, that if your building is larger than five or uh, 50,000 square feet, that you have to basically be under constant audit. They want you to just always be measuring um, how much your building is, how much energy your building is using. And then local law 97 is truly the the stick. So 97 says that there's going to be penalties of $268 per metric ton of greenhouse gas emissions above limits that they have set based on building, uh, building type, building size. And the the bad news for a built for building owners in New York is that it's actually that that limit is going to be drastically lowered in the year 2030. So the, the limits are going to go to place in 2024. So for five years, they're going to be at a certain level. And then once we get to 2030, they're going to be drastically lowered. So just to give you an idea of what this could mean is decent sized buildings are probably if they're let's just say they're like we talked about the 66 percent that have never done anything and they're they're old. They might be looking at maybe a four figure, maybe a mid to high four figure fine, maybe five figures. But if they continue to do nothing in in, in New York City um, after 2030, the fines are essentially going to go up by 20, 20 times, um, hmm. which is just unbelievable. I mean, you, you want to talk about a stick. I mean, that is that's a stick. So yeah. you're, you're you're going to have a situation where, you know, folks are going to be paying fines annually of high five figures, maybe six figures. I mean, it, and imagine skyscrapers. I mean, you could be talking you could be talking half a million, three quarters of a million dollars a year if they're not in, in compliance. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, then you need to do that. that then you know, back to my capitalism point, if you're looking at it from a homo economicus uh, uh, standpoint, hmm, you know, what's what's the better investment for me to upgrade my building and, um, you know, put in all new, more energy efficient stuff and, you know, use the energy savings to defray the the cost or just keep sitting here and paying x fines for you know <laughs> infinitum and um, i think that's new york city's calculus is that people are going to be forced into the decision that like look if i have to pay a hundred thousand a year or whatever the case might be and i i have no idea when that's going to end i might as well just pay the half a million now and get my forty thousand dollars in in energy savings and just call it a day
Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think people respond to different things, right? And I think, especially when it comes to greenwashing and being sustainable, it's like people always think it's like in 2050, you know, then I'll get there. Um, And so the the carrot's not as motivating as the stick is because if you're a commercial, if I was a commercial property owner, and you came along to me and you went, you know, like, do you, here, here's the benefit. Like you could actually like save energy and reinvest that into building upgrades. I'm less motivated by that proposition than I am by the, well, if you don't do this, you know, you're going to get a 20x multiple R as a penalty because you're not energy compliant. I think it's really uh, interesting to see what people respond to because, you know, people like humans are the same, man. Like it's like there's greed, you know, we're motivated by ego and things like that. And so if you come along and you say to me, hey, you're either going to drop 40K, <laughs> you know, becoming compliant or you're going to lose 750k if I'm a commercial property owner for me it's about profit like that's what motivates me I'm less motivated by vision I'm less motivated by the idea of being sustainable like I don't care if I go for like dinner at Tiffany's you know or breakfast at Tiffany's and then I go yeah yeah my my, my 10 buildings are compliant you know what I'm saying like sure. I, I don't care about that mm-hmm. uh, and that and that's like the universally true thing and I think it's a it is about driving the the behavior in such a way that you get the outcome you know um, absolutely and having yeah. been in this industry as long as i have um carrots are only going to do so much so i i, I agree with you I, i've seen it I, i've seen it from the standpoint where you can put packages in front of building owners that you know is might save them you know the way we always put it is well it's going to save you x amount in your expenses every year even after debt service and that is also going to increase your net operating income, your NOI, which also increases the, the value you're building, um, because that's how, that's how you evaluate the value of the building. And, you know, even when it's in black and white terms, you have to do nothing. Just, this is going to pay for itself, and you're going to be richer, your building's going to be better, and your building's going to be worth more money. I've got 14 other priorities that I need to worry about. I'm not going to worry about upgrading my, my heating and cooling equipment right now. Exactly, because I care about occupancy. You know exactly. what I mean? Like, how, am I, am I, is my occupancy uplift going, you know, in the right direction or not? Um, yeah, I so, mean, even when we make those arguments, uh, Matt, it's like, but you can charge your tenants more because it's, it's a, it's a better, you know, you, it's, it's a more comfortable space. You know, you've got, you've got space, you know, space heating or cooling or whatever the case might be. And, and it's really interesting how just there's, there's a default to the, uh, you know, to the way it's always been that people really need to be motivated to make a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they're like, I got a friend of mine, Rich Maholland. He's quite crass. He's Scottish. I love Scottish people. <laughs> My grandfather was Scottish. So don't judge me, but he, uh, he had a, a business called um, 21 tanks and, uh, and he, but he's now a professional speaker and he speaks all around the world. And so he talks to executives and he said, you know, when this idea of uh, change or innovation comes up, he said, I've realized after many years of trying to get companies to innovate is that people love to talk about change, but they don't actually want to change. They want to talk about their ambitions to be sustainable, but they don't actually want to be sustainable. Why? Because uh, change is hard. And he said, you know, and he said, Rich is um, taking his words legit, but he was like, uh, corporates want the 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 quick uh, sorry the QDF the quick dirty fuck they want to believe that they can change but then mm-hmm. they don't want to change sure you know 
It's very well, I mean, I think the inconvenience that I think goes through building owner minds when they're thinking about um, upgrading systems is uh, now I'm going to have six months of people, you know, walking around my building. Everything's going to be under construction. It's going to everything's going to be in chaos, and you know, that's what starts to go through their mind. It's just like, do I, I don't want to deal with that. You know, I just let's just call it a day. You know, just leave it the way it is. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The, Coming at it from both sides, I think, is a smart uh, a smart way to go about it. And, um, you know, Ithaca, we're proud of Ithaca for being a, a pioneer there. But to have New York City basically doing the same thing is uh, is just crucial because New York is, well, it's, you know, well, this is a this is a built in New York uh, uh, series. Right. So why not? Why not? Why don't say it? Uh, New York is the capital of the world. So <laughs> <laughs> having it happen there, uh, I think, is a, uh, you know, a really important thing. And, and hopefully we'll see it, it bear out of the next. Uh, they'll see some real results, which I believe they will uh, over the next you know five years or so. So, Derek, um, your software is being uh, used by some really amazing uh, companies, world's largest uh, energy modeling software company, RAT. Uh, Screen is using your software. Um, and I want to quickly talk to you uh, about uh, partnerships. So, mm-hmm. you know, for something like as a startup founder, but built in New York, you know, uh, trying to solve this uh, this problem that we've, that we've uh, tabled for everybody, how important is partnerships for you? Obviously, you're not dealing with the end customer here, which is the building owner. You're actually dealing with this intermediary channel, HVAC installers, you know, uh, mechanical contractors and things like that. So I mean, I'm guessing that partnerships are important. Are they important? And what have you learned about the value of partnerships in helping scale a startup? Oh, they're, they're absolutely crucial. Uh, definitely. I mean, when you're a startup, uh, you know, when we start, I, I always like to say, we were literally, this company's first meeting was literally in a garage uh, from one of our, our co-founders garage and a picnic table. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, when you start out, it's like, who are you, you know, who the hell are you? And, um, you know, having that partnership, those partnerships, it's, it's so important. It's to some extent, uh, you know, you use the term, you know, borrowed credibility, uh, that, you know, Oh, you know, this company wants to work with, with MPEC that, wow. Okay. They must really be legit. Um, so there's, there's that side of it. Um, but you know, there's so many things that you can't do on your own when you are such a small team, obviously we've grown through the years, but we're still a small team. And so partnerships, you know, just, they fill in so many blanks for you. And, um, yeah, specifically around, around, around red screen. I mean, so red screen, that partnership, which we were able to, uh, to, 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 to land this year, uh, red screen is the largest energy modeling software in the world, like you mentioned. Um, and what an energy modeling software does is, okay, think about all what I talked about, about going around, taking pictures, writing down serial numbers and specs. Well, what happens with it after that? Well, usually it's either going to go into a report or it goes into an energy model. So what is an energy model? You take all those pieces of equipment and all the different, you know, the condition of the building and, and all sorts of different stuff, and you put it into an energy modeling software, and that tells you, okay, this is how much energy you're using today, and if you did X, Y, and Z, this is how much energy you would be using then, and then you can use that to build a financial model and say, okay, so you're paying 13 cents a kilowatt hour today, uh, you're going to be saving a million kilowatt hours so uh, a year, so you're going to be saving. Uh, $130,000 a year on your electric bill. You know, it's it, it basically goes like that. 
And so red screen is used by over 750,000 um, energy modelers worldwide. Um, and the one thing that they saw in us with their part, the thing that we could bring to them, of course, there's plenty of things that they can bring to us, but what we could bring to them was that especially on larger buildings, they were they were relying on assumptions around many different things with regard to equipment. And they didn't have what's called atomic level data, which is like, what's the efficiency on this machine on this floor? And they would just use assumptions for all of that. And so with MPEX uh, FastSight Survey, you can so easily gather that information and capture that information that now you can be way more accurate and way more precise in your um, in your assumptions or rather about in your modeling around energy usage and energy savings. And that's so cool because now you can have so much more confident or confidence in what you what you're pre pre presenting to building owners, because you're saying with, you know, X percent more confidence that, yeah, you really are going to save this much because we're going from, you know, 54 percent efficiency. And the boiler that there's that 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 is there today to ninety six percent with what we're going to put in, mm. and that equals X number of you know, BTUs per year. Mm -hmm. uh, Derek, just to quickly talk about your journey here. So sure. um, I think I think what you've done is really innovative and solves a real need. Um, what what stands out for you um, as a key insight or lesson? that you've learned on your journey of building MPEC uh, that other founders need to know about? Well, I would say a couple of things. The first thing um, is, and this is not anything that's going to be novel, but I just feel like I have to say it, which is you have to do something that you feel really passionate about. Um, I mentioned that uh, Herbert Dwyer and I, my co-founder, we both worked in this industry. And we, we know it inside and out. We know the process inside and out. And it was just always so silly to us that this was what was being done. Um, and so solving this problem was such, it means something to us because we're helping people that were just like us. And then, you know, around the larger industry side of it, um, you know, I really wanted to do something in my career that I felt like I would be making a difference and specifically around doing something in, in the, in the battle against climate change. Um, and, um, you know, for, for folks that are wa watching this rather than listening, um, it might shock you to know, but, um, I'm, I'm, uh, a card carrying member of the, the Mohawk, uh, nation and, uh, uh, Hedina Shone, uh, also known as Iroquois Confederacy. And so when I was a kid, I, I grew up and spent a lot of time um, on the uh, on the Six Nations Indian Reservation with my family. And um, through my grandfather, Thomas LeClaire, and my great uncle, Sill, who was the uh, Sylvanus general, he was the he was actually the general of the uh, or the general, the uh, the chief of the uh, Cayuga Nation in Canada. They taught me about how important nature and the, you know, the, the balance between nature and spirituality and that really stuck with me. And, you know, I could not feel more proud to be building MPEC. And, you know, I, they're, they're both gone now, Uncle Sill and, and my grandfather. Uh, but I feel like they would be, you know, they would be cheering me and MPEC on because, you know, we're trying to do what's right for, 
for Turtle Island, <laughs> which is uh, uh, the way that uh, Hadina Shone uh, think of the world or as certainly in North America. And that's really awesome. And so if you can find that passion, that thing that, that you know, you know, it doesn't have to be your grandfather, but, you know, somebody instilled in you. And that's really something that is going to keep get you up every day because it is a grind. Like I said, six years for us. I mean, there are a lot of bad days in those six years, more bad than good. So you got to have that. Um, <clears throat> Isn't that so, funny? Isn't that funny? Like that there's more bad days than good days. Do you know what I mean? Like, think about that. Like yeah. there's more bad days in building a company than there are good days. Isn't that weird? Like who chooses that? Like who chooses that as their like their life? Like it, it takes a it's it's a certain type of uh, masochism, I think. But you know what's funny <laughs> is I told sometimes when things are really tough and and you know there have been days where it's like are we should you know should we just give up? Should we you know is this really going to work? Yada yada. And the the conversation the the. I guess the the one liner that I always say back to her when we're having these conversations is, you know, if we didn't secretly love it, we wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> I think it takes a certain type of of person to uh, to do it. But yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, it, it there really are more bad days than good. <laughs> There's just no way to sugarcoat that. But I know, right? Well, um, speak <clears throat> speaking of bad days. Yeah. Um. So. So I'm going to have a bit of fun with you. So I'm going to give you the keys to the Map Round Show time machine, right? So you're going okay. to get, here's the keys. Uh, off you go. Go back to day one um, and cast your mind back to like all the bad days, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you you wanted to quit and so on and so forth. And even the good days. Um, what stands, what would you do differently about building this startup? Well, um I would have listened to my customers more closely earlier. Um, we ultimately did go through the National I-Corps program, uh, which um, is is uh, provided to you know high potential startups by the National Science Foundation. Um, and we ultimately interviewed 125, I think, engineering and contracting firms, and you know obviously their employees. But we wait, we didn't get there until 2019 i want to say it was a little ways in and boy i really wish we would have done that right at the beginning because you know you have and one of the other you know if it was just pieces of advice i would give just a, a person in general but certainly a startup founder you need to be open to being wrong about everything because you know a lot of us had like these really deeply held beliefs and especially when you're an entrepreneur, I mean, what kind of a person becomes an entrepreneur? What kind of person has the ego to think that they can build a market out of nothing and build a product out of nothing? I mean, it's it's insane. So like when you tell that person, oh, no, actually, you know, you need to think about it. Like you might be wrong. You might be right overall, but there are a lot of things you're wrong about. Like sometimes you kind of get your back, you know, back up a little bit. And that's that's why I think customer discovery in that process was so valuable was it taught us all the things that we were wrong about or all the assumptions that maybe were self-fulfilling or whatever the case might be. So that, that would be my piece of advice. Figure out what your customer wants and make sure you talk to a whole hell of a lot of them. Mm. Yeah. I would have saved millions if I'd taken your advice, like back in the day, like I've literally spent millions on products that didn't actually go to markets. What is it? Either the number two, number one or number two reason. I think it's number one. The number one reason why startups fail 
is, you know, to put it kindly, no market need. I remember remember seeing that. And that's just, I built something no one wants to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you got to find a problem that your customers have. And, you know, it's, uh, I've, I've, you know, told you before, but I mean, I've started 14 uh, startups over the last 25 years, had a couple of exits, most of those died. Um, and it's interesting for me to observe that, you know, like when I thought I would be going out to solve this problem, like let's just say it's problem A, I wound up solving problem F, you know, because Mm -hmm. of this process Mm -hmm. of listening to the customer. Um, Like I wound up thinking my customer would be, you know, like this type of business and then it wound up to be a completely different business. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I suppose to your point um, around being open to like what you don't know, um, you have to like, you know, stop believing in your own bullshit because it's nice to say that you want to solve this problem, but actually like the world doesn't need it right now, you know, or maybe the timing's not right, or maybe they're not prepared to pay for it. So, you know, if you're open to like, even, you know, this, right? Like I've been talking to founders also being open to like, okay, well, where's the gap here and how can I add the most value? Same thing. Um, you know, you can't just think it's X because it's, it's probably nine times out of 10, not X. So if you're not open to it and you just commit to X, like you're probably going to die. Like your business will die. Yes, that's absolutely right. And like I said, there's a certain type of person that becomes an entrepreneur on the disc scale. They're usually either in the, they're usually in the D, maybe sometimes in the I. So they're, they have a dumb, most, most entrepreneurs have a domineering personality and you know, that's, that comes with hardheadedness. And, and so I think for entrepreneurs, especially, it's so important to remember that you are absolutely wrong. When you start your business, there's like a 99% chance that you're that you're probably going about it the wrong way. <laughs> the only way <laughs> you're going to see your own blind spot is by listening to others. And 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 when I say others, I'm mostly talking about your customers because yeah. you're solving a problem. That's that's the key. You're not building like I, I like to think about it from this perspective. You're not building a company. You're not building a product. You're solving a problem. That's mm-hmm. really what we're here to do. And like Herb and I, I mean we we saw a problem in real life that we dealt with and we said we need to solve it. And that's, you know, sometimes it's, it's so easy to get, you know, all excited about, Oh boy, what if the project, you know, could make milk or the product could make milkshakes or like, you know, what if it could do this? Well, wouldn't it be great if it did that? Does the customer want that? Cause if not as cool as it is, it's a waste of time and money, you know? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> mm-hmm. remember it's, it's all, it's always about the problem. Yeah, and you got to build your business around that problem. That's the only way you scale. Because actually, you know, like the if you think about a problem, like it's it's different in terms of the its acuteness depending on who you're talking to. You know, so you could have the same use case problem exist in many companies or many industries. Like take AI, mm-hmm. many applications of AI, pretty much any like industry or company. But within that, there is an opportunity to find like who's suffering the most with this problem or with this use case. Yep. Yep. Your, your beachhead market. And um, I think it's in uh, crossing the chasm, which of course uh, pretty much everybody listening to this will have either known of or read, if not do it immediately. Um, <laughs> there it is uh, where he, and I, you know, being a, a bit of a history uh, nerd, he uses the analogy. Uh, you got it. You got it. You need to take Normandy before you can start thinking about taking Paris, mm. uh, and um, it's that's so true. You got to you have to have your beachhead market before you can start thinking about like, oh, look at all these other things I can do. You mm. need to solve one problem for one subsegment, 
-hmm. and, and before you can do that, you can have all the grandiose visions as you want, but you know, your business isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. My grandfather, who was Scottish, was actually on the beach on D-Day. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. So, God I mean, it's, it's true, right? It is yeah. absolutely true. But Derek, um, let's wrap this up. Like, why do you do what you do? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I mean, I think I gave a little bit of insight into that, you know, with regard to my family history and, you know, wanting to, uh, to, to do them proud. Um, and uh, I think really that's what it is. You know, I, my, 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 my dad um, was a, uh, he was a production worker at the Goodyear, at a Goodyear plant. So he was sort of a, one of the last of the dying breed of the, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, the union uh, plant, uh, power, not power plant, but like, uh, you know, factory workers um, in, in Buffalo where I grew up. And, um, but he was, he was always really handy, right? He was always, he always loved building things. My, my, he, as a gift for my, uh, my soon to be born son, he built a, a, a huge uh, a cabinet for him. And, and he asked me one time the kind of the same question, like, well, what's so interesting about what you do? And I say, I, what I said to him was, well, I said, you know how you love building, well, you know, cabinets or you love building uh, Adirondack chairs. Like I get that same satisfaction out of building this company. Like this is, it, it's it it really makes me feel like so accomplished to have these challenges and to try to overcome them one by one. And I mean, I think back to the the one job I had um, after business school that was not this. Boy, I hated it, and I made so much more money than I make today, and I had so much more vacation than I had than I have today. But it was just not fulfilling. And, you know, to have that ability to have the, you know, know that you're getting up and you're doing something that's never been done before and you're building something that you can be proud of. That's what gets me out of bed every day. Amazing. Derek, great to have you on the show, buddy. And, um, you know, I'm super excited to see where you guys are going. I know you guys are growing aggressively. So that's great feedback. Um, but more importantly, you know, like it's great to get your story, you know, out into the world. And I'm sure a lot of founders um, have benefited from this. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Alrighty guys. Thanks so much. Ciao, ciao. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.